Good afternoon, everyone. For the past 6,000 years, approximately since mankind rebelled in the Garden of Eden, the earth has been under the curse of Satan's rule. And Satan has not ruled without restraint. God has remained supreme over the universe, including the earth. But to a large extent, God has allowed Satan to influence mankind and Satan within certain parameters has remained as we are told in 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 4 and other scriptures. Satan is the God of this age. He's referred to as the God of this age in 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 4 or the God of this world in various scriptures. He is the one who is setting the tone for most of what happens in the world. The result of Satan's influence has been a history of oppression, warfare, famines, disease, and other evils that have plagued mankind. What the world needs more than anything is a new kind of government, a government not of Satan, nor a government of men, but a government of God, the benevolent creator and author of every blessing including life itself. We read from the book of James chapter one, beginning with verse 17, that every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. God who made the world and everything in it since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he worshiped with men's hands, as though he needed anything, since he gives to all life, breath, and all things. So everything that is good, every gift that is good, every blessing, including life itself, comes from God. We read in Acts 17 and verse 24, Acts 17 beginning with verse 24, God who made the world and everything in it since he is Lord of heaven and earth does not dwell in temples made with hands nor is he worshiped with men's hands as though he needed anything since he gives to all life, breath, and all things. The Feast of Tabernacles points to a time in the future when the kingdom of God will supersede the kingdoms of this world. And Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the second person of the Godhead will rule on the earth in person, bodily, under the authority of his Father in heaven. We read in Revelation 11 and verse 15, Revelation 11 and verse 15, then the seventh angel sounded and there were loud voices in heaven saying the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ and he shall reign forever and ever. We read a prophecy in Daniel 7, beginning with verse 13. Daniel 7 and verse 13, I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. Then to him, and this is picturing Jesus Christ before God the Father, to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom the one which shall not be destroyed. And we're told the resurrected saints shall rule with Christ under his authority as servant leaders in the kingdom of God on earth when God establishes that kingdom. In Daniel 7 and verse 27, Daniel 7 and verse 27, it says, Then the kingdom and dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people, the saints of the Most High. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey him. And then in Revelation 20 and verse 6, it says, Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection, over such the second death has no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. So what is that world going to be like when Jesus Christ is ruling? 
there are many prophecies in the Bible that give us insight into what the world will be like under the rulership of Jesus Christ as, it, as opposed to what it is like now up to the present time. And in this sermon, I want to discuss some specific ways in which the world will be different after Jesus Christ returns and establishes his government over the earth. And I'm going to mention a number of specific differences. Many of these could each be a sermon in and of itself, but I want to give you an overview of various differences which will be evident when Jesus Christ begins to rule and does rule as opposed to what the situation has been historically up to the present time since the time of Adam and Eve. The first in a list of differences, and I suppose they could be categorized in various ways, but this is how I'll categorize them for purposes of this sermon. The first in the list of differences is there will be an end to oppression. There will be an end to oppression. Throughout history, most human beings have been oppressed. In our article entitled Proclaim Liberty, posted on our website, cogmessenger.org, is provided documentation concerning the pervasive physical slavery that has afflicted mankind historically. The oppression of involuntary servitude in one form or another. In other words, slavery has been the lot of vast numbers historically, including the vast majority of Europeans during the Middle Ages. When people think of slavery, they often think only in terms of the slavery of uh, blacks in America and perhaps other parts of the Western Hemisphere. And uh, blacks have certainly been subjected, vast numbers of them, to being enslaved, but so have other families of mankind, including most Europeans throughout history. In addition to physical oppression, mankind has been subject also to the oppression of spiritual blindness. Throughout human history, all but a handful, a very small handful of humans have been oppressed by one or the other or both of these forms of slavery, most of them by both forms, both physical slavery as well as spiritual blindness or slavery to Satan. And from a spiritual standpoint, because Satan is an oppressor. And then added to that, consider other forms of oppression such as deprivation, disease, and other evils but when Jesus Christ returns to establish his kingdom, the oppression of human beings will come to an end. And Satan, the great oppressor and his system of deception and oppression will be overthrown. We read in Isaiah 14, verse three, Isaiah 14, verse three, it says, it shall come to pass in the day the Lord gives you rest from your sorrow and from your fear and the hard bondage in which you were made to serve, this is looking forward to the time of Christ's return, that you will take up this proverb against the king of Babylon and say, how the oppressor has ceased. This king of Babylon is a metaphor for Satan in this particular case. How has the oppressor ceased? The golden city ceased. The Lord has broken the staff of the wicked, the scepter of the rulers. He who struck the people in wrath with a continual stroke. He who ruled the nations in anger, in, uh, in wrath rather with a, I know it is in anger, I misread it here. He who ruled the nations in anger is persecuted and no one hinders. The whole world is at rest and quiet. They break forth into singing. So this is picturing a very a significant marked change in the earth at the time of Christ's return when he establishes his rule and the whole earth will be at rest and quiet and break forth into singing. 
Speaking of Jesus Christ, the Messiah ruling on earth in Psalm 72, beginning with verse four, in verse four actually, it says, he will break in pieces the oppressor. He will break in pieces the oppressor. It goes on to say in verse 13, he will spare the poor and the needy and will save the souls of the needy. He will redeem their life from oppression and violence and precious shall be their blood in his sight. This is speaking of Jesus Christ as he rules the earth in righteousness. He will spare the poor and needy, redeem their lives from oppression and violence. Concerning Israel in Zechariah chapter nine, verse eight, Zechariah nine, verse eight, God says, I will camp around my house because of the army, because of him who passes by and him who returns no more shall an oppressor pass through them. For now I've seen with my eyes. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the, the horse from Jerusalem. The battle bow will be cut off. He shall speak peace to the nations. His dominion shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you also, because of the blood of your covenant, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. So Christ is coming to set those who are, have been imprisoned in captivity and oppressed in that way from, from their plight. And from a prophecy in Isaiah concerning Egypt, which applies to the millennial period, in Isaiah 19 and verse 20, it says of the Egyptians, they will cry to the Lord because of the, the oppressors and he will send them a savior and a mighty one and he will deliver them. The psalmist in Psalm 10 foresees near the end of the psalm, how oppression will cease under Christ's government. In verse 16, Psalm 10, verse 16, the Lord is king forever and ever. The nations have perished out of his land. Lord, you have heard the desire of the humble. You will prepare their heart. You will cause your ear to hear, to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed so that the man of the earth may oppress no more. And these are just a few of the scriptures in the Bible that tell us that Christ is going to put an end to oppression under his government. There will be no one to oppress, no one allowed to oppress, and no one will be oppressed under his government. And it will not only be the peoples of Israel who will be freed from oppression, but all the people under Christ's rulership worldwide will be delivered from oppression. The second difference between today's world and the world that will be established under Jesus Christ's rule is that there will be a just government. There will be justice in place of injustice. The, the governments of this world under Satan's rule have been anything but just. And there are many scriptures that portray what the governments of this world are like, what, what the world is like under the rulership of evil men and Satan. In Ecclesiastes 7 and verse 15, Ecclesiastes 7 and verse 15, Solomon wrote, I've seen everything in my days of vanity, or in other words, in this fleshly life. There is a just man who perishes in his righteousness and there is a wicked man who prolongs life in his wickedness. Life itself in today's world is not just. Just because you strive to live your life in a godly fashion did not, does not necessarily mean that, that things are going to go better for you in this present life than for the wicked and those who have no sense of justice.
In a description of the injustice of the present age, we read again in Psalm 10, beginning with verse 4. Psalm 10, verse 4, The wicked in his proud countenance does not seek God. God is in none of his thoughts. His ways are always prospering. Now notice this is speaking of the wicked. His ways are always prospering. Your judgments, that is the judgments of God, are far above out of his sight. As for all his enemies, he sneers at them. He has said in his heart, I shall not be moved. I will never be in adversity. His mouth is full of cursing and deceit and oppression. Under his tongue is trouble and iniquity. He sits in the lurking places of the villages. In the secret places, he murders the innocent. His eyes are secretly fixed on the helpless. He lies in wait secretly as a lion in his den. He lies in wait to catch the poor. He catches the poor when he draws him into his net. So he crouches, he lies low that the helpless may fall by his strength. He has said in his heart, God has forgotten. He hides his face, he will never see. Arise, O Lord, O God, lift up your hand, do not forget the humble. Why do the wicked renounce God? He has said in his heart, you will not require an account. So this is a, an apt description of vast numbers of people down through history on the face of the earth, powerful people who have no regard for, for God, who don't believe that, that they will ever be called to account for their deeds. And I would guess that it is uh, typical of vast numbers of human beings today. How many people actually live their lives thinking consciously that they're going to be held to account by God for their deeds. These words characterize how the world has been and is all too commonly. In Isaiah 59 verse 4, Isaiah 59 verse 4, it says, No one calls for justice, nor does any plead for truth. They trust in empty words and speak lies. They conceive evil and bring forth iniquity. They hatch viper's eggs and weave the spider's web. He who eats out of their eggs dies, and from that which is crushed, a viper breaks out. Their webs will not become garments, nor will they cover themselves with their works. Their works are works of iniquity, and the act of violence is in their hands. Their feet run to evil, and they make haste to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity. Wasting and destruction are in their paths. The way of peace they have not known, and there is no justice in their ways. They have made themselves crooked paths. Whoever takes that way shall not know peace. Therefore, justice is far from us, nor does righteousness overtake us. We look for light, but there is darkness for brightness, but we walk in blackness. That's how God characterizes our world today and in ancient times as well. Goes on to say, beginning with verse 13 of Isaiah 59, in transgressing and lying against the Lord and departing from our God, speaking oppression and revolt, conceiving and uttering from the heart words of falsehood, justice is turned back and righteousness stands far off for truth has fallen into the street and equity cannot enter. So truth fails, and he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. Then the Lord saw it, and it displeased him that there was no justice. There was no justice. Now this is how God views the world. Doesn't mean there's absolutely no justice, but by and large, this is not a just world. And God is permitting the world to be the way it is. It is permitted for the world to be an unjust world, but the day is coming when the wicked will be held accountable for their wickedness. In Psalm 37 and verse five, Psalm 37 and verse five, it says, commit your way to the Lord, trust also in him, and he shall bring it to pass he shall bring forth your righteousness as the light 
and your justice is the noonday. Rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. Do not fret because of him who prospers in his way because of the man who brings wicked schemes to pass. Cease from anger, forsake wrath, do not fret, it only causes harm. For evildoers shall be cut off. But those who wait on the Lord, they shall inherit the earth. For yet a little while, and the wicked shall be no more. Indeed, you will look carefully for his place, but it shall be no more. But the meek shall inherit the earth, and shall delight themselves in the abundance of peace. The wicked plots against the just and gnashes at him with his teeth. The Lord laughs at him, for he sees his day coming. The wicked has drawn the sword and have bent their bow to cast down the poor and needy, to slay those who are of upright conduct. Their sword shall enter their own heart and their bows shall be broken. So even though there is injustice, if you live your life with proper regard toward God and striving to obey and serve Him, you will have your reward eventually. As it says, the meek shall inherit the earth. And those who do wickedly will be called to account in due time. In Psalm 140 and verse 12, it says, I know that the Lord will maintain the cause of the afflicted and justice for the poor. Psalm 140 verse 12, Verse 13 says, Surely the righteousness shall give thanks to your name. The upright shall dwell in your presence. So justice is going to be administered for the poor and actually for everyone when Christ establishes his kingdom. And it is promised in many scriptures that justice will be established on the earth. In Isaiah 42 and verse 1, Isaiah 42 and verse 1, it says, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my elect, one in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the Gentiles. He will not cry out nor raise his voice nor cause his voice to be heard in the street of bruised reed. He shall not break in smoking flax. He shall not quince. He shall bring forth justice for truth. He will not fail nor be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastland shall wait for his law. Jesus Christ is going to establish justice on the earth. And that means that people will be able to live in peace and safety without fear of criminals disrupting their lives, without fear of an unjust government taking advantage of them, stealing from them, oppressing them, or doing any kind of evil or harm toward them whatsoever. There will be justice. A third marked difference between today's world and the world to come under Jesus Christ is an end to war, an end to war. Throughout history, from the time of Cain and Abel, men have been in conflict with one another, killing one another. The history of the world is largely a history of strife conflict and warfare. Some historians have said essentially the history of the world is a history of warfare. Untold millions, perhaps billions of human beings have been slaughtered in warfare besides the countless numbers who have been deprived of loved ones, impoverished and victimized in many other ways by the wars of mankind. Nations have been bankrupt and ruined and, and cities have been destroyed. Whole vast swaths of the earth's surface have been laid to waste. 
by man's warfare. And behind these wars is the malevolent spirit of Satan, the devil, who organized a revolt against God and sought to overthrow him. The first war that we know anything about is, was a war between Satan and God that resulted from violence within the heart of Satan who sought to destroy God, to overthrow God. In Ezekiel 28, verse 14, Ezekiel 28, verse 14, it says, you were the, speak, this is speaking of the one who we know as Satan or the devil. You were the anointed cherub who covers. I established you. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked back and forth in the midst of fiery stones. Satan began as an archangel, a holy angel of God. Verse 15, you were perfect in your ways from the day you were created till iniquity was found in you by the abundance of your trading. You became filled with violence within and you sinned. Therefore, I cast you as a profane thing out of the mountain of God and I destroyed you, O covering cherub, from the midst of the fiery stones, meaning he cast him out from his presence and cast him, as other scriptures tell us, down to the earth. Satan is the father of murder and of lies. As we read in John 8, verse 44, John 8, verse 44, you are of your father the devil. He was speaking to some of his enemies who were seeking to kill him. He said to them, you are of your father the devil and the desires of your father you want to do. He, speaking of the devil, was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources, for he is a liar and the father of it. Under the influence of Satan, the world before the flood was filled with violence. As we read in Genesis 6 and verse 11, Genesis 6 and verses 11, it says, the earth was corrupt before God and the earth was filled with violence. So God looked upon the earth and indeed it was corrupt for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And so God, because of the violence and the evil that pervaded the world that then existed, God destroyed it with water, a flood that covered the whole face of the earth. Only one family was saved as we read in scripture. And from these examples, we can see that God can indeed make war on his enemies when it's necessary. But God loves peace, not war. One of the titles of Jesus Christ is Prince of Peace. Prince of Peace. When he establishes his throne over the nations, he will put down rebellion, the rebellion of Satan and of mankind. And in doing so, he will establish peace on the earth. And it will be a just peace. And it will be a peace that will result in security, joy, and happiness for all mankind. In Isaiah 9 and verse, and it will be a lasting peace as well. In Isaiah 9 and verse 6, Isaiah 9 and verse 6, it says, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder. And his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever. In Isaiah 2 and verse 2, Isaiah 2 and verse 2, it says, It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountains. A mountain here being a government. 
and shall be exalted above the hills, and all nations shall flow to it. Many people shall come and say, Come and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways, and we shall walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and rebuke many people. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. Speaking of Israel, restored under Christ's rule in the kingdom of God, it tells us in Ezekiel 34, beginning with verse 27, Ezekiel 34 and verse 27, they shall be safe in their land. They shall be safe in their land. It's often occurred down through history that people have not felt safe in their land. And uh, <clears throat> one time in particular of note was between World War I and World War II, where during World War I, the war was billed as a war to end war, but it did not end war. And between those two wars was a tremendous amount of, of societal chaos and confusion, conflict, and trouble. And people did not feel safe. The people uh, felt unease. They felt they had a, a feeling that there was something ominous that was going to occur, and it did occur. The Japanese began to attack China in the early 30s. Hitler came to power in the early 30s in uh, Germany. Mussolini came to power, I believe, in the early 30s or late 20s. And uh, people in France, people in Britain, people in other countries did not feel safe. They weren't safe. But here it says they will be safe in their land and they shall know that I am the Lord when I've broken the bands of their yoke and delivered them from the hand of those who enslaved them. And they shall no longer be a prey for the nations, nor shall beasts of the, field, beasts of the land devour them. They shall dwell safely, and no one shall make them afraid. What a difference it's going to be from the way the world has been for thousands of years. As a result of Christ's rule, wars will cease from the earth in Psalm 46 and verse nine. Psalm 46 and verse nine, it says, he makes wars to cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and cuts the spear in two. He burns the chariot in the fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. And we read in Hosea 2 and verse 18, Hosea 2 and verse 18, in that day, bow and sword of battle, I will shatter from the earth to make them lie down safely. That is his people, the people of the earth will lie down safely. The bow and the sword of battle will be shattered, destroyed from the earth. A fourth major difference that will exist once God's kingdom is established on the earth, a difference from how the world has been for 6,000 years, is that there will be harmony among races and nations. There will be harmony among races and nations. Uh, 
God himself is the author of diversity among peoples. He made mankind in such a way that out of the first parents of mankind would spring descendants of a variety of families, each with its own characteristics. People of, of various complexions, which are, I don't really know any really white people. I guess there are a few people that are really white, but, <laughs> but uh, there are people that are called white, <laughs> even though they're not truly white. Uh, and uh, then there are people that are called yellow, even though they're not really yellow either. <laughs> And people are called red, although they're not red, actually. <laughs> and then people who are black and brown and so forth. All of those came from the same parents, ultimately. Adam and Eve. And God, for some reason, created within the... the, the um, <clears throat> the genetic makeup of the first parents, all of those varieties of people, the, the, the potential for all those different varieties to spring from the same parents. And then later on, God separated the nations. This occurred early in the history of the earth after the flood. He separated the various uh, families to give to each family group or each national group its own inheritance on the earth. In Genesis 10, we read of the various family groups and the lands that each of them were given at that time. At the end of the chapter, we read Genesis 10, verse 31, says these were the sons of Shem, speaking in the latter part of the chapter about the descendants of uh, Shem, one of the three sons of Noah, says these were the sons of Shem according to their families, according to their languages, in their lands, according to their nations. So these families that we read of in Genesis 10 are the beginnings of the various nations, uh, ethnic racial groups on the face of the earth. All of them sprang for these, from these original groups that are mentioned here in Genesis 10. Some national groups know where they descended from. Many do not. But <clears throat> there have been people who have researched these matters and pretty well identified many of the various uh, national groups that exist today. And, and how they relate to these peoples that are mentioned in, in, uh, in Genesis 10. I don't necessarily think we know every detail about all of them, but there is quite a bit we can learn about the origin of different national groups. And it goes on to say in verse 32 of Genesis 10, these were the families of the sons of Noah, according to their generations in their nations. And from these, the nations were divided on the earth after the flood. In chapter 11 of Genesis, it tells us how the nations came to be separated into the various languages and locations because they did not start out that way. The nations were at first of one language. There was only one language on the earth. And they were all located after the flood, after a period of time, they were still located in a narrow geographical area in what came to be called Babylonia in the Near East. And in a spirit of rebellion against God, they had organized and sought to build a city and a tower in Babylon, which was an affront to God. In 
specifically in order to avoid being scattered to their habitations as God intended. It tells us in Genesis 11 and verse 1. Genesis 11 and verse 1, Now the whole earth had one language and one speech, and it came to pass as they journeyed from the east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they dwelt there. Then they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They had brick for stone, and they had asphalt for mortar, and they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower whose top is in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. Why were they building this? So that they could avoid being scattered abroad over the face of the earth. Verse 5, But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. And the Lord said, Indeed, the people are one, and they have one language. And this is what they begin to do. Now nothing that they propose to do will be withheld from them. Come, let us go down and, and there confuse their language that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of, the, of all the earth, and they ceased building the city. Therefore, the, its name is called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language, the, the word Babel originally means uh, confusion. The Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of the earth. So the languages were confused. Different peoples, different family groups began speaking different languages, couldn't understand one another's speech. And God scattered them over the face of the earth to their habitations, the ones that he intended for the various family groups to inherit. But the nations, although they all descended from Adam and Eve, and they were all of God's creation, have not been able to live together at peace with one another. Between the various ethnic and national groups throughout history, there, have been, there has been conflict, hatred, and wars. Jesus said in Matthew 24 and verse 6, Matthew 24 and verse 6, He said, You will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not troubled, for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be famines, pestilences, and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginnings are the beginning of sorrows. So Jesus pointed out that as had occurred even up to the to the time that he made this prophecy, there had been wars and conflicts between various nations and groups of people, families on the earth fighting with one another for various reasons that this would continue and it has continued down to our age and it continues today. And all you gotta do to see evidence of it is pick up a newspaper or turn on the news on television or the internet or wherever you get your information from. And you don't have to look very hard to see accounts of various ethnic groups, nations, fighting, disputing among themselves. And even within national entities like the United States, we have a, a diverse nation. We have people in this country from all over the world people from Africa, from Asia, from Latin America, from islands across the Pacific and so forth. Probably virtually every ethnic and racial group on the face of the earth is, has some, at least some representatives in this country. And what do we have constantly? We have racial conflict and we have political parties that try to incite or take advantage in some way, gain political advantage through stirring up hatred and 
conflict among the races as though they needed any help. But despite the differences in the various racial, national, and ethnic groups, we all have in common the fact that we are all God's children. And we all have the same potential. It has been God's intent from the very first that the nation should live in peace and that they should all seek to have a relationship with the true God as his children. We read in Acts 17, Acts 17 and verse 26, he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings so that they should seek the Lord. Notice why, why God has done this, so that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being, as also some of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. Paul was speaking to Gentiles, people different from the Jews, who were a completely separate and distinct ethnic group from others. And Paul was pointing out to these Gentiles that God made from one blood every nation, that God intends that all should seek the Lord and find God and have a relationship with him. And when Christ's kingdom is established on the earth, this desire on the part of God will come to fruition. All the nations on the earth will come to know God and learn to love God and to serve him in peace and harmony. And it says in Psalm 72, beginning with verse 10, Psalm 72 and verse 10, it says, the kings of Tarshish and of the isles will bring presents. The kings of Sheba and Seba will offer gifts. Yes, all kings shall fall down before him and all nations shall serve him. Eventually, when Christ's kingdom is established over the earth, all nations shall serve him. In Psalm 86 and verse nine, Psalm 86 and verse nine, it says, all nations whom you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. So what Paul said to the people in Athens, we read about in Acts 17, that they were created so that they might seek the Lord in, in the hope that they might find him, they will find him. He will find them. And they will, they will says they will all come and worship him and glorify his name. Old enemies such as Egypt, Assyria, and Israel will together serve God. In Isaiah 19, Isaiah 19, verse 21, then the Lord will be known to Egypt and the Egyptians will know the Lord in that day and will make sacrifice and offering. Yes, they will make a vow to the Lord and perform it. And the Lord will strike Egypt, he will strike and heal it they will return to the Lord and he will be entreated by them and heal them. In that day, there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria and the Assyrian will come down into Egypt and the Egyptian into Assyria and the Egyptians will serve with the Assyrians. In that day, Israel will be one of three with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing in the midst of the land. These are three of the leading nations down through the history of the world. They're three of the leading nations today, but they have often been at odds with one another. But in that day, it says, they will be a blessing in the midst of the earth, whom the Lord of hosts shall bless, saying, blessed is Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, my inheritance. In Psalm 22 and verse 27, Psalm 22 and verse 27, it says, all ends, of the earth, uh, all ends of the world shall remember and turn to the Lord and all the families of the nation shall worship before you for the kingdom is the Lord's and he rules over the nations. When all nations recognize and learn to serve the true God, all men will be brothers, children of God, 
not only in a physical sense, but in a spiritual sense as well. All will learn to love and respect one another and respect their differences and their similarities. They won't be hating one another and persecuting one another, but they will learn to love and respect one another. In John 4 and verse 7, or 1 John 4 and verse 7, we read, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. In this the love of God was manifested toward us, that God sent his only begotten Son into the world that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love has been perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit and we have seen and testified that the Father has sent the Son as Savior of the world. In other words, of all mankind. Then it goes on in verse 20 to say, if someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? And this commandment we have from him, that he who loves God must love his brother also. And so men will learn when Christ establishes his kingdom that all men are brothers and we must love one another. In this sermon, we've discussed four ways in which the world will be different when Christ returns. There will be an end to oppression. There will be a just government. There will be an end to war. And there will be harmony among races and nations. The impact of just these four differences alone are incalculable. But there are many more profound, very profound differences yet to discuss. And perhaps we'll be, be able to continue to discuss some of them in a future sermon.